Living with a healthy fear of God. That's next on Abounding Grace. I think that there are, there's probably more fear of man among us than there is the fear of God. And so much will be brought into order in your life with a healthy choice to fear God and to trust him with our lives and to recognize that consequences follow sinful behavior and to recognize that we have been given all the power necessary through the grace of God by his spirit to live a life that pleases him, to live a life that honors him. And yet we find over and over again in our study of the kings, most of them failed miserably and abandoned God. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my prayers. That you would bear my cross. You Thanks for joining us today for Abounding Grace. Today, Pastor Ed Taylor will have us consider what it means to live with a healthy fear of the Lord and how this will impact our lives. You know, many scriptures emphatically call us to fear the Lord. Solomon, you may recall, summed up the entire book of Ecclesiastes by saying, fear God and keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. So we do well to see what this involves. I think you'll be encouraged and challenged by what Pastor Ed has to say today. Let's join him in 2 Kings 17. Take your Bibles, would you please, and open them to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Living with a Healthy Fear of God. And there really isn't any struggle or any difficulty in your life. There really isn't any temptation you won't be able to overcome with a little healthy fear of the Lord in your life. Uh, A a reverence of awe and respect for who God is, the supreme, all-sufficient one, the one who is omnipresent, the one who is omnipotent. I think that there is probably more fear of man among us than there is the fear of God. And so much will be brought into order in your life with a healthy choice to fear God and to trust him with our lives and to recognize that consequences follow sinful behavior and to recognize that we have been given all the power necessary through the grace of God by his spirit to live a life that pleases him, to live a life that honors him, And yet we find over and over again in our study of the kings, most of them failed miserably and abandoned God. And so notice in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered 
a conspiracy by Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow the king of Egypt and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. The first thing I notice is we have another king and another nine years of evil among the people. Another evil king, another, another nine years of evil leadership. And then there is this king of Assyria that comes up against him. Hosea in verse 3 becomes his vassal. And the king of Assyria uncovered this conspiracy. Because these are real governments. Uh, these are real governments filled with real people. And so there's a conspiracy by, and, at, at foot. And it says that he sent messengers to sow the king of Egypt and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So on, on the side, the king is looking to align himself with Egypt. He's looking for some help. He's looking for, so he uses money, as we've seen before, to try to buy the kind of help that he's looking for. But the king of Egypt is no help because he gets thrown in prison. And right at the outset, I'm reminded, and we must be reminded, and I wonder who this is for. I wonder who needs to hear this now. And here's the truth. It's something I think, you know, we'll hear, it, we'll hear it tonight, but it's like something we have to learn ongoing, and it's simply this. Looking to man for help is empty and fruitless. Trusting man to deliver us. I mean, you look to the king of Egypt. Surely he'll deliver, but there's always someone stronger. And the king of Egypt's in, thrown in jail. What's he going to do to help you? The Bible says it this way, Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. This is a solid theme throughout the Bible and so needed in our lives. When will we learn that man is no real help? Now, I'm not talking about how God uses the body of Christ to encourage one another, to help one another. I'm not, I'm not speaking about the family of a church or the ability to help someone in times of need. That's not the kind of help I'm looking for or I'm describing. What I'm speaking of is simply putting your trust in man and not in God. Trusting in the word of man and not in God. In Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some of horses. And this is really speaking of military might. It's speaking of political power. Some people trust in men. The amount of chariots, the amount of tanks, the amount of armaments, the amount of the military you have. Some people trust in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Because disappointment and consequences await you and await me when we place our trust in man, when we place our trust in man's power and on our own limited resources. Would you turn over to Proverbs chapter 3 with, for a moment, please? If you haven't memorized the scripture in a while, would you please put these verses to memory? Would you please trust in the Lord with all your heart? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Put these in, into your heart. Memorize them. Write them down on a three by five card and begin to memorize them. Put them in your back pocket. Bring it out when you're waiting in the line or you're at the market. And learn, verse five, 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's possible for us to trust our own resources before, you know, we think of maybe trusting another man, but the temptation is also to trust in our own resources, in our own understanding, in our own power. And the Bible says, don't do it. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what's the promise? He shall direct your paths. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be held to your flesh and strength to your bones. What happens when you put your trust in the king of Egypt and he's thrown in jail? Then who do you trust? Who do you turn to next? Learn to trust in the Lord. Verse 5. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah by the harbor and the river Gozan and in the city of Medes. And so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that they had feared and they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. And notice verse 9. Also the children of Israel, mark that word, secretly, secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations had done whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. I mean, verse 12 is like a clear indication. God said, don't do this. And that's what they did. Can't that be the banner of your life at times? God said, don't do this. And that's what we choose to do. And that's where they are here. Verse 13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets, namely every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you by the servants, the prophets. I mean, God was faithful to send messenger after messenger. When the kings weren't following God, when the priests weren't following God, God would raise up a messenger, a prophet, to send a strong message because they weren't listening. They weren't listening to the leaders. The leaders weren't leading. They weren't listening. And even when the prophets came, they rejected the prophets. Nevertheless, verse 14, they would not hear, but stiffen their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They acted like unbelievers. And we'll get that, to that in a moment. The children of God were acting like unbelievers. They stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not, they were acting like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So, verse 16, they left all the commandments of the Lord their God made for themselves a molded image and two calves 
made a wooden image and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practice witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. The judgment of God through the nation of Assyria finally comes upon Israel. And the Assyrians were known to take nations captive. Captivity was normal for them. It was their way of conquering a nation as they would bring the people back into the area and assimilate them into their own pagan culture. And the primary goal of captivity was to remove any national identity and to truly assimilate them. And Israel was scattered in many different places so that they would not gain greater numbers to rebel and overthrow. Notice in verse 9 that it says that the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. Now, is there any such thing as a secret sin? Yes or no? Now, sometimes we think that is yes. Sometimes we believe that we can keep a secret from someone close to us. We can keep a secret from our friends at church. We can keep some secret sin from those that are important to us. And we'll come to a false conclusion, if that's you, that there is such a thing as secret sin. And I guess in relationship, in human relationships, you can keep something secret for a season. For a season. But before the eyes of God... Nothing is missed. We've learned that in the book of Hebrews. Nothing is hidden before God. Nothing is truly a secret. Things get revealed. Things come out. It's only a matter of time. The the Bible speaks of the warning to us that be sure of this. Your sin will find you out. Many people misinterpret that into thinking that God is just kind of running you down, checking things out, and God will find you out. No, actually, God already knows. It's not that God will find you out, because when you and I sin, we sin before a holy and a righteous God. It's that your sin will find you out, that it will be revealed, that nothing will be hidden before God. And even though the Bible describes this secret sin that they did against the Lord, we see from the rest of the revelation that God knew and he brought judgment upon the people. It says, notice in verse 14 again, nevertheless, they would not hear, but they stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers that did not believe. You've got to mark that. Mark that phrase. We have an example in the Bible here of believers in the old covenant followers of God that acted like unbelievers. And you say, Ed, where is that in the New Testament? Is that even possible? Is it possible for you to be a follower of God and yet in your behavior act like an unbeliever? The answer is yes. Let me show you. Would you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When you choose to harden your heart toward God, when you choose to resist the grace of God, when you choose to become pridely, pridefully arrogant toward the things of God, you will begin to act like an unbeliever. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writing 
to a church in the city of Corinth. Notice what he writes. Verse 1. And I, brethren, he's speaking to the brethren and the sistren, brothers and sisters. <laughs> I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Then he gets into the exact things. Uh, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So, verse 7, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. The issue in the life of the Corinthians, the issue with anyone that is a true born-again believer that's acting like an unbeliever is an issue of maturity. Spiritual maturity. Paul would write to the church in Corinth rebuking them for their carnality. Now, in our everyday language, carnal has come to mean something way over the edge, sexually sinful. A better word to translate carnal here would be fleshly. A better word would be, well, notice how the New Living Translation translates this. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to mature Christians. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk and not solid food because you couldn't handle anything stronger. And you are still aren't ready for you're still controlled by your own sinful desires. You're jealous of one another. You quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your own desires? You are acting like people who don't belong to the Lord. When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I prefer Apollos, aren't you acting like those who are not Christians? And the answer is yes. You see, we're not to put our hope in man. We're not to follow man. We're not to elevate men's words above God's words. We're not to have preferences when it comes to the men and the women that God sends into our lives to speak the truth and to teach us and to guide us and to lead us. As Paul would say later on, he says, aren't we just all ministers? And that word translated ministers speaks of the under rower, the doulos. Aren't we all just servants? Isn't that what we are, church? Amen or amen? There is no other choice. It's either amen or amen. We're just servants. The difference between us truly is not that we're not, none of us here are not servants in Christ. The difference between us is simply areas of responsibility. The difference of what God has entrusted to us. The differences of what God wants to accomplish in and through our lives for the sake of His glory, for the growth of His kingdom. God isn't interested in growing any particular church. God is interested in growing the kingdom. He isn't interested in us just being only interested and, and, you know, God isn't always just kind of keeping us only interested within this little circle of what we know is our home church, but to have a heart to fill heaven 
And what is God going to do through our lives? And so for us to prefer, well, you know, I like this guy, and I don't like that guy, and I— the Bible says, be careful. When you start talking like that, when you start thinking like that, aren't you just like an immature baby that needs to be fed milk? When it's the Lord that gives the increase? When it's God that does the work? A carnal person is someone that's dominated by their flesh. Or I like how uh, it's written in the New Living Translation, like you're just in the world. You're just a worldly person. And sometimes we, we think of the phrase worldly person, we try to identify what's well, this music in this place. No, it's your behavior and your connection to the things of God. And yes, it's possible for a believer to act like an unbeliever. Spiritually mature believers, spiritually mature men and women don't divide over people. They don't become envious. They don't cause divisions. Spiritually mature men and women don't cause problems. They're too busy feasting on the rich truths of the scriptures and putting them into practice. They're too busy caught up in the love and the mercy of gra of, and grace of God, serving him and loving him and enjoying him. Just caught up in all that he's doing and will do. And yet, I have to say this can be a problem for all of us. Taking in, but not applying. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, it says... For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now as Jans and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. The truth is, is that you can come to the knowledge of the truth by faith in Jesus Christ. That knowledge puffs up. But it's love that edifies. Love is the true measure of maturity. Love is the true measure of relationship. Spiritual immaturity is a big issue among followers of Jesus Christ. Spiritual immaturity, this lack of spiritual growth over time, just drags down the progress of a person and sometimes drags down the progress of those around them. It says... Notice in verse 1, lest you are unconvinced that believers can act like unbelievers, he addresses them, number one, as brethren. He wanted to speak to them as spiritual, and they are referred to as what? Babes where? In Christ. Did you see that at the end of verse 1? Babes in Christ. It's immaturity. Paul is speaking and rebuking believers based on their behavior, what they're saying, how they're acting. And I just, I share that and refer to verse 1 again because there are just some today that say, oh, no, no, believers can't be carnal. Yes, believers can be carnal. Yes. I would even say, go, to far, go as far to say is that when you choose to sin, you are carnal, fleshly, in that moment. That's the reality of the situation. We've been looking at the Old Testament book of 2 Kings here on Abounding Grace with Ed Taylor. And if you missed any portion, you can simply go online to calvaryaurora.org. Another convenient way to get these daily studies is by signing up to receive the free Abounding Grace podcast. 
Load the messages onto your mobile device and listen at the gym, in the car, or wherever you go. Just go to calvaryaurora.org or look for Abounding Grace Radio in iTunes. You can also get our app. It's available on all platforms. This is another way to hear our program. Search for Calvary Aurora. What is the key that unlocks God's blessings? In a word, grace. That's the emphasis in Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything. In it, he explores the mystery of grace and reveals why we can never grow in grace by our own efforts. It comes from the Lord. We'd like to send you a copy of Why Grace Changes Everything for your gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace today. Please remember it's through your support that we're able to present this radio program on this station and others like it. Call 877-30-GRACE or make a secure donation online at calvaryaurora.org. If you'd rather write, our mailing address is Abounding Grace, 18900 East Hamden Avenue, Aurora, Colorado, 80013. We'll return to Second Kings next time on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We'll see you then. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado. 